I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health consulting firm for young digital health companies and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors consults with digital health companies to address growth, fundraising, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me on Twitter at Stephen Wardell. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. Our guest today is Ryan Steller. Ryan is the founder and CEO of Standard Care. You can follow him at twitter.com slash, is, is, it, is it Ryan Steller or Ryan S? or uh, full, full name, Ryan Steller. Ryan Steller. Um, today's topic is the future of remote monitoring codes, what are the codes, how to get reimbursed, and what products and business models are working. First off, here's the format of this investor talk. We'll chat about the news for about 40 minutes, and then we'll talk about today's topic for another 30 or so minutes. And we'll be taking questions and call-ins from the audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register an account with call-in. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com, or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat or press the website's call-in button to join this to join the discussion. So, uh, welcome, Ryan. Um, let's see, Ryan. Uh, we seem to have a technical problem. Ryan's just uh, just dropped off, and so. What I'll do is, uh, while we wait for Ryan to jump back on, um, I'll talk about the, the macro outlook, um, which is what we, what we usually do during this time. So I'll jump to that. Um, we may be getting Ryan back. So for macro outlook, um, oh, for hi better everybody. or for worse, uh, Ryan for Seller, digital I'm, health uh, leaders, my background um, we need to know, understand the macro outlook better to understand AI, why the fundraising on, environment is uh, the FDA regulated stuff, particularly uh, Ryan, you're back. things that were um, embedded. So I, I, I was just saying, uh, please introduce devices, yourself to our audience. Uh, cardiac um, implantables, which is where I kind of started my career. I founded um, a class two medical device company with a doctor from NYU uh, out of graduate school way back in the day. Spent about six and a half years at Medtronic and then moved to Silicon Valley. Kind of got off the corporate ladder. Um, taught myself how to write software, oddly enough, and been doing early stage uh, digital health companies for about the past 10 years or so. And I'm based out of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. That's great. So um, young digital health companies uh, need to care for better or for worse about the macro environment more than ever before because it's determining why the funding environment got tougher recently and it, it will determine whether the funding environment gets better soon. I think I have a contrarian thesis that we'll see an improvement in the fundraising environment for digital health companies this third quarter and fourth quarter. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Whereas I think, I think that the conventional wisdom is that it's going to be more than four quarters from now. We're going to see turbulence for four quarters before we start to see the situation start to resolve. And I'll go, I'll go into why, and I'll give us some updates on the data. So uh, when we look about, when we look at inflation, 
we see that the last BLS inflation report from May 10th showed annualized CPI uh, for April at 5.9%. Um, that's about where the market expects it to be. It's not spiraling out of control. Um, it's, it, it may, we may be facing a new normal of 3 to 6% inflation instead of 0 to 3% inflation. Not great, uh, but also um, uh, there isn't the, the fear and anxiety that the market uh, was experiencing when we saw that tick up to the six, seven and higher percents uh, in the past. Um, so jobs, uh, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported jobs on June 2nd <coughs> and showed employers adding 339,000 jobs, nearly twice as positive as, as expected in terms of expectations. So that's great. And there's also concern we're going into a recession, but I don't see how, and, but no one knows when we're going into a recession. There's hope it will be a shallow recession. Um, and from an innovator's perspective, we very much want any, we don't want a recession and we want any recession to be shallow because recessions cause the enterprises that buy our software products to have to have leaner budgets. So we don't want to see a recession, um, but I don't see how we're going to go into a recession in the near term, shallow or not. Uh, if we have incredible jobs reports, it, it means the economy is roaring and employers want, uh, want to hire employees. So um, recession, um, Fidelity and Larry Summers, the, the former Treasury Secretary, former president of Harvard, um, they both say that we do expect a recession, um, but it could be a shallow one. And, it's, and we're at the end of an expansionary period and the beginning of a contractionary period. And Larry Summers, I think, has been saying there's over a 70% chance of a downturn this year. Um, so rates, the Fed has been saying for two FOMC meetings that it is coming to the end of rate raising. Um, and that's great news because uh, as innovators, we don't want to see the Fed raise rates. We'd, we'd rather uh, not have rates rise. Uh, and that could lead to a little bit hotter inflation, but we'd rather have that trade off. Um, and so currently the Fed's, um, uh, their, uh, the Fed's benchmark rate is at the range of, of five to five and a quarter full percentage points. And uh, the next FOMC meeting is coming up next week. Um, and a number of inflation hawks like Larry Summers are advocating for a 50 basis point rise at the next week. Um, but uh, I think as, as innovators, we don't want to see inflation, these rates rise because this causes the NASDAQ to pull in and the uncertainty around rates uh, causes investors to not want to lead deals and price deals because next month or the month after, they could see the Fed raise rates and then the NASDAQ would pull in and then their valuations would have been messed up. They would have gotten at the wrong valuation level. So we want to see this stop. And the Fed's been saying that it, it expects to stop raising rates for two cycles of FOMC meetings. So I'm surprised to see Larry uh, Summers advocating for 50 basis point uh, rise. We'll see. Um, and part of my thesis that things are going to look better is that the Fed which is saying it's stopping raising rates is actually stopping raising rates. That's an important part of the of my optimistic thesis about uh, investors returning venture investors in digital health returning to healthier, higher rates of investing is that the Fed stops raising rates. So the, the banking crisis is out of the headlines. And I think people assume that if we do have a rolling banking crisis and it gets worse, that the Fed's going to backstop um, the banks that are in trouble. Uh, it doesn't have to backstop the banks that are in trouble. They can go through the orderly, uh, you know, um, 
uh, shutdown process. Uh, but because it's been backstopping banks recently, I think people assume that they're not as worried. Innovators have gotten their money out of regional banks and, and put their money in money market accounts or in the big four banks uh, since then or, or split their deposits. Um, so and the bad news about a continuing banking crisis is that if the Fed backstops it, which is a good thing for confidence in the economy, um, that creates a moral hazard in the banking industry. And it also is inflationary if the Fed is using is printing dollars to bet to backstop uh, 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 banks that otherwise would have inadequate capital. So the debt ceiling crisis that caused a lot of anxiety in the economy and that was resolved successfully. And that then we saw the markets lift after that. So I think that's, that's out of the news and we don't talk about that anymore. And then as that is up about a point today um, and is at about uh, 13.2 thousand. Um, and uh, another key point we're looking at is uh, the IPO window, which is currently closed for tech and digital health. We want that to open up. Um, and so the, the, the key benchmark that we're looking at is Kenview. So Kenview was the consumer, is the consumer division of J&J. &J. It IPO'd on May 4th. So even when the IPO window is closed for nearly every company, nevertheless, the consumer division of J&J, &J, which includes Tylenol and Band-Aid in it, um, could still IPO in that environment. And it IPO'd at, a, at an offer price of $22 a share, and it's been up and it's been trading in a band of about 25 to 27 since then. So it's up. So that's a really good sign that that, that IPO was successful. And it means that in boardrooms, you're, you're having tech unicorns and digital health unicorns are thinking about an IPO because uh, Kenview could go out and IPO and be successful and see lift and stay up. Um, so we're watching that carefully. And ARM, uh, the UK chip manufacturer, uh, is still planning to IPO probably in the fall. Um, and they are now seeking to position themselves as an artificial intelligence stock play, since the sector has seen a lot of lift in valuation multiples recently. Um, and we're also watching Instacart, another tech company, which is slated to go public at some point, maybe also in the fall. Um, and if those companies IPO and are successful and see lift in their stock afterwards, 15% lift, something like that, uh, then I think we will see tech unicorns and digital health unicorns rush to IPO. I think the IPO window will be open. And so conditions like these, like the Fed stopping raising rates and the IPO window opening and inflation being being higher than we'd like, but not out of control, mostly tamed. I, I think we're going to see better environment, resolution of uncertainty for investors, a better investment environment. I think we'll see VCs who are sitting on the bleachers. CEOs of digital health, of digital health companies are swimming in the pool saying, come on, jump in. I think we'll start to see as these pieces fall into place, VCs start to jump in to the pool and invest more again. So that's my uh, my contrarian thesis there. Uh, uh, Ryan, your thoughts on reactions to any of these? I think um, the, um, you know, are you seeing, you know, it's like a, um, you're like a fisherman. It's been six uh, quarters you know, of a very to, stern environment. Many, you know, it's like a fisherman going out to, uh, money. to fish and you see are the you boats coming anything back. Out there? Any, any, any reaction the to fishermen this? are forlorn um, and some of them decide that they're not going to be fishermen. They're going to become... Uh, uh, you know, blacksmiths or whatever, I don't know, whatever the, the analogy would be. So I think a lot of people are uh, wrapping it up or they're kind of, um, you know, in cockroach mode and a handful, you know, there's a handful of uh, investment announcements that have happened, uh, particularly around large language models. Um, but 
you know, put peeling back the relationships behind those investments. They're often people who were very connected to funds that had like stern, you know, very affirmative long-term theses. And, um, you know, the, the, the capital was, had a, had a plan behind it, you know, several years ago. Um, yeah, it's, it, it could definitely be better. I think the, um, I think, the, you know, there's a, the all in pod, which is a kind of the weekly weather report for, uh, uh, you know, for startup founders to understand what's going on in uh, VC group chats. Um, you know, last fall kind of like admitted they didn't realize how sensitive venture capital was to interest rates and, you know, how like the top level limited partner capital allocators think about VC, um, which was, it's kind of like realizing your parents, you know, don't know how the world works. You're like, oh God, like the, the, the people who are like driving influence, like we're not like aware of how they fit in the overall capital stack globally. And I think that's, um, that's just kind of like a wake up call for all of, you know, Silicon Valley for the past decade. It's been kind of a zero interest rate casino a little bit. And I think uh, we're unwinding that and I don't know, you got it. Funds have to pay out money. Like that's it. Like durable revenue. And it was not cool for a long time. And I think it's coming back in vogue. Yeah, that, uh, that's well put. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what I'm seeing in digital health specifically, and the Olin pod is great, by the way, for tech uh, and, and also just for sentiment, understanding the sentiments uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, what I'm seeing in digital health is for, for rounds C, D, crossover, IPO is down 90 to 100%. And yes, within that, Ryan, uh, you know, I, uh, the deals I'm seeing done are often there's, you know, it's, it's an insider deal or a strong prior relationship as well. That's, that's a good way to put it. Um, A and B down 75%. This is compared to an average of 2020 and 2021, which were boom years. 2021 was kind of a crazy boom year. Um, and that was all driven by uh, the Fed's zero interest rate policy, which was adopted after the global financial crisis of 2008 to nine, which is now that now that zero interest rate policy is over, probably never to be seen again. Um, and then uh, uh, seed rounds only down about 25%. So seed is, is doing well, but a lot of that is, um, is uh, AI, uh, young AI companies. It's, so seed rounds, that's different people, uh, if different investors, different pools of capital, different timeframes. And there's a mini boom going on in uh, backing uh, seed stage AI companies. Uh, so that's what's going on in, in the seed round. So, um, uh, so anyway, moving on some thoughts about valuation. So as a whole, the digital health sector of public stocks is down about 80% from the boom. And that's pretty tough on those public companies. Um, and those public valuations are translating into private company valuations as well. So the most recent SAS capital index report for the period ending May 31st, is saying that median valuation levels for SaaS companies are 6.5 times forward revenue. So that's compared to the prior month of 6.4 times. So up just the smallest tick, 
is probably reflecting some tech optimism we've seen in the last month, um, including an AI boom in stocks and a rise of the NASDAQ in the last month. Um, and the long-term median of SaaS companies is about eight times forward revenue valuation. Um, high growth SaaS has often traded at uh, eight to 12 times forward revenue. Uh, but this compares with the crazy times of 2021 when median SaaS traded at 16 times forward revenue and high growth SaaS traded at 30 to 35 times forward revenue. So um, that, that just, I, I, I go over those multiples just to show us how much lower we are than historic median and then the, then the boom time valuations. And a lot of companies raised a lot of money and got valued at those high multiples. Um, the valuation environment is still off, which means that investors in general prefer profitable companies and, and are less excited about unprofitable companies, even if they're high growth. Um, and I was at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit uh, yesterday, and I, re I repeatedly heard from VCs that confirming what we're saying here, which is that fundraising is slow, down rounds are happening, um, and they're also seeing more investor-friendly terms thrown into the down rounds like I keep hearing about 2x uh, liquidation preferences uh, in, in digital health. And that's actually following. We heard about that a few months ago in tech. So as usual, digital health is following tech and is behind tech. Um, and, uh, and I'm also hearing that you know, companies are not belt tightening enough. So we're in a storm and we didn't have everybody you know, belt tightened enough a year ago. We're in a storm. Companies haven't belt tightened enough, need to belt tighten further and that private market valuations are still unrealistic um, and that VCs uh, no, are, as a result, they're, they're, some of them are closely. saving um, their dry powder I think the, to deal with messes in their own yard one of the things, uh, rather than using uh, their dry powder to invest in the Founders can do, I think, in so, this environment is fine. Brian, any thoughts on find the, the valuation environment? Handled 2021 correctly um, and then kind of try and learn from them. And um, one of the people in digital health I really admire is uh, the founder of Eligible uh, API, which is, her name is Caitlin Gleason. And she's opened up a bit about the financials of that company. And uh, first, how, how long it took to get, you know, revenue started in the early days, it's over, over a decade old now, and then how they chose not to raise money in 2021. And, you know, being in the headlines and that sort of apex of ego and, you know, fulfillment and validation that comes from raising at these super high valuations has this hangover. Um, so she was kind of recently talking about how they don't have that hangover. They're just focusing on normal operations. And I think their net income is like $5 million, which is fantastic. And um, yeah, I think the one of the things you can do is because this is this moment will pass, but you can try and find the CEOs that have a value system that was you know, durable and sort of even through these peaks and troughs and kind of try and learn from those folks, because that's uh, that's something you can actually emulate and scale later later on. I've, I've also heard of um, what I'll call uh, private equity conversions. And so that is when you have a company that has some revenue, maybe it has 10 million in, in ARR or 5 million in ARR, and it very much saw itself as a, as a venture-backed company with top-line growth over 50%, maybe even higher than that. And that's not working anymore. They cannot get a venture fund to back this when it's going to require, uh, when they're 
their uh, earnings negative and they're going to be so for years. Um, and so they're doing a PE conversion, which is, you know, PE doesn't just come after venture capital. It's often looking for different things than venture capital. So that is, you know, belt tighten, uh, change your sales priorities, accept, um, get to break even, accept top line growth of zero to 15 percent. Um, and then you're now you're theoretically break even. So but now you're talking to a different class of investor, which is private equity investors um, who are thinking about investing in you for their version of growth, which might be 15 percent top line growth. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and so by by sort of uh, converting away from from hyper growth into uh, into reasonable growth, uh, it changes the expectations around the company. It also changes the kind of investor who's interested in you. So that's another another you know, story I've heard. So um, and and that but the CEOs who are doing this are um, are forced to do it because they 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 can foresee that they don't have control and won't get the funding if they stay on the venture model in today's environment, which is so different than just six quarters ago. Could change again soon. So now we'll cover news of the week. So news which. We're going to focus primarily on, on funding events in the innovation economy, the young companies, um, and also other news. But it remains slow, not a lot of fundraising, and more layoffs than successes. Um, so and for our audience, if you guys have any stories you'd like to throw into the chat, we'll, we'll, we'll reflect and give you opinions on them. Um, but the first story I'll, I'll call out here is uh, Indiana-based RX Lightning, a digital distribution platform for specialty medication. Uh, raised $17.5 million in Series A funding um, from uh, Long River Ventures Health. Uh, that would be Josh Flum, uh, the partner there, um, with participation from McKesson Ventures. Um, so that is great. Um, this is what, exactly what we're looking for. Um, I don't know the back the backstory to this, but this is a classic venture deal of the sort that we used to see 10 plus of these announced almost every day um, during the boom. Uh, but this is lead investors leading um, uh, with support from other top, free, you know, uh, top investors from a corporate venture fund, etc. So uh, the company offers an enrollment platform to streamline the specialty medication onboarding process for providers. Um, so this is great. The trouble is, there's only one of these, um, but uh, uh, so, but this is a, uh, this is a good sign and we've seen a lot of deals that just looked optically odd. Uh, so from the CEO's perspective, they got it done. Yeah, they I get think, full credit um, for getting it done. Yeah, pharmacy the benefits have been, syndicate uh, looks odd. Know, there's a lot but of from, uh, problems know, in healthcare. Congratulations to them. Of, um, but what we're looking for is for these investors to jump so the, from the, the observable world of healthcare. We all agree on only seeing one of these the, stories you know, today. The, what are on the map is actually very spotty or kind of like vague. And then the actual map is huge and far bigger than a lot of people can conceptualize. So uh, when healthcare is bad, we look for the boogeyman and kind of like the, the you know, who's the rough player. And, um, you know, PBMs are kind of the one I think a lot of people have uh, uh, consensed around this past year. So it's um, not surprising to hear, uh, um, you know, there, there is some uh, risk taking and, you know, different, different ways of distributing drugs. So that kind of fits um, with the narrative uh, for, for the past year, I would say. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, things are, things are not, not a lot is getting funded. The, uh, the lead funders are elusive. Um, you know, we have relationships with, um, a number of firms and they, they're really helpful and they keep in touch. And sometimes they reach out, you know, to me, to, 
provide you know diligence and sometimes uh, I'll reach out to them to get you know market sentiment and um, but conspicuously they're not uh, you know writing checks very quickly so it's kind of more the implication being more that hey we're here if you find a lead um, but uh, we'll follow right first to, first to be second is the uh, is the meme so yeah more now more than ever perhaps. So and then and then moving on, uh, Canadian fertility and reproductive health company Twig closed an eight million dollar Series A funding round led by Rhino Ventures. Uh, Twig's offerings include in vitro fertilization and other fertility procedures, um, and including a focus on LGBTQ family building. Uh, so it's great to see that. But this is what I mean. I have not heard of Rhino Ventures before now, and it's my job to learn what who the venture funds are and who the partners are, um, and so. Uh, this is another example of a company that got the job done by finding a, uh, you know, by, by raising money, good for them. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but we're not seeing a lot of the classic deals. Um, so, uh, and then this also, this reinforces, I think, that fertility tech uh, is still hot, whether it's selling to um, the employer market or whether it's a benefit um, of the plan. I also had not um, heard of Rhino uh, after noting that deal. Even um, consumer kind of being in the sometimes target demographic pay. for I think, I think fertility those products. I do think there's a um, so kind of a long it, way to go. That, uh, um, any, I wish any any society wasn't tied the, to uh, the Twig deal. My employer's sentiment around whether or not you know I can have a next generation of my family. So that's um, that's one where I think the uh, the overall. Um, way we pay for healthcare in the United States, I wish it were different. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of unmet need there. And congratulations to that team for building something that was compelling to uh, the, the folks that invested. And then I'll also throw out, you know, Apple announced the Vision Pro in the last week. Uh, so, um, and I, I think that, um, I think missing from that was uh, an emphasis on gaming, which is most people would say is going to be a big driver of headsets sales. And also, I didn't see a lot of emphasis on, on healthcare, at least in the shortened versions of their presentation that I saw. Um, so, uh, but I know Apple in general yeah, has I a very think, serious. Uh, you know, it reminds um, me exactly of the iPad launch, uh, which where is a bunch of people were because the original launch, iPad was uh, also like a ten inch, and the people would say, "Oh, if it's, it if it's perfectly in a, so, a doctor's white." Any thoughts about clearly uh, the, the Apple Vision Pro the medical community? And that was kind of the case, but it was you know I think it took a little while for that as a platform to to be to be really relevant. I was in sales at the time, so it had an obvious value for us for distributing content uh, companies like Viva um, built, you know, CRM and content, you know, digital content management systems around the iPad that were very effective. Uh, so vision, uh, the obvious one is training. Uh, when I was at J and J Ethicon as an intern, like 20 years ago, we had this secret project called project Darden and we were trying to get uh, free Xboxes from Microsoft to do uh, surgical training uh, games. And so it's a, it's a long running meme in the space and at a $3,500 starting price point for the vision pro, perhaps, uh, vertical specific applications would be some of the most, uh, early compelling ones. But, uh, 
there's also weird things about the launch uh, that I'm kind of waiting to see how how real the device is. Actually, it, it it would be unusual for Apple to delay distribution after verbally committing to it. But some things feel slightly off about the supply chain signals to me. So. One thing I liked about it is that uh, it doesn't include hand controllers because Apple's gotten so good at using cameras to watch your fingers. So you're just using your hands. And also the, the version I saw had one strap behind your head, but no strap over top your head. And the, 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 the Facebook Oculus version does, you know, in, includes a, an optional strap over the top of the head. But just you want to make it simpler for people. You want to make it easier. Apple's is the expert at doing that. So they figure out a form factor where they and, and a technology where they can take some of these slightly awkward things away. So I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm actually going to invite one of our listeners uh, to be a, a speaker with this fully armed and operational um, you know, social podcasting platform, uh, Dave Sikowski. Uh, I'm going to uh, invite you to speak. So Dave is a former um, Apple product manager who worked on the predecessor, the early version of, of, of Vision Pro. Uh, and so Dave, I, I, I hope you keep this relatively short, but if you could just tell us, you know, what is a vision of how a headset could be used in healthcare? So I'll invite, uh, I'll invite Dave to speak briefly on that, uh, on that topic. Uh, and then for our audience, if there's any other news stories that you want us to react to or give opinions uh, about, uh, you know, uh, please throw them in the Absolutely chat. Not. And we'll I'm way too to cheap. Uh, Absolutely not. So, uh, like but if somebody wants the speaker, somebody has a call with um, to give me one, I'd be happy. To uh, and uh, so, Ryan, are, are you you wearing app, Apple an Apple um, uh, audio headset? Uh, are you going to buy the Apple Vision Pro when it comes out? <laughs> and Dave, I, th I think you need to unmute and activate camera. Um, and I got the Oculus Quest uh, uh, for my kids, um, and so I think we're I think we're trying to have Dave join us, and Dave's trying to join, and we may be running into some tech problems. Uh, so um, what I'll do is uh, I'll move on to other topics, and and maybe Dave can join us. But Dave, the system shows that you're able to be a speaker, but that you may need to unmute and activate your camera, uh, or that could be the system of crashing. So. Um, you know, uh, if our audience could bear with us, we may have Dave join us. So, so the next is upcoming conferences. And so the, the theme of this is to advise young company CEOs, should they go to a conference? Is it worth going to a conference um, uh, or under for what subset uh, or who's interested in going to a conference? And also to provide a little bit of a review of the conference. Is it worth it? So Dave may have joined us. Um, are you there, Dave? Yeah, can you hear me? Yep. That's awesome. So Dave Sikowski, uh, former Apple product manager, we'd, we'd love to get your thoughts on the Vision Pro. Maybe you saw the whole uh, unveiling and also what is its application in healthcare? Yeah, so uh, going way back, you know, before I left to start my company, um, I was working in what is called the Silicon Engineering Group. It's like the core technology and platform team there at Apple. And one of the things we looked at, at you know, was just part of research, right, was display technologies, interconnect technologies, um, and those types of things, as well as early 
interface design and that kind of stuff for how this thing could work. And they have done, I mean, they have moved mountains to be able to do some of the stuff that's getting talked about, but maybe relatively glossed over in, in what's going on here. So like the display tech alone is insane. The wireless tech that's been done to make it work is insane. The internal interconnects to move, you know, that many pixels and that kind of stuff, the foveated rendering they're doing, a lot of that stuff is just, you know, totally, totally wild. Um, anyway, so yeah, I'm super, super uh, jealous and, and proud of them and, and amazed to think about, you know, where we were when I, when I left and what they've been able to accomplish in the, in the time in between is just absolutely insane. So huge props and congrats to them. I think it's all very real. You know, I know how, how hard we were thinking about stuff then and, and for them to have invested and pursued and done what they did here and then demo it the way they did. I think you're right that stuff's not done. I mean, there's what half a year to a year before it's actually in consumer hands. So there's lots of work to be done. Um, but holy crap. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Um, yeah. Then pivoting to healthcare. I mean, I think no one knows. I think the reason to put it out and to do it at dub dub and to do it this way is let others come up with killer apps, you know, um, all of the, the tech press and, um, tech tubers have kind of talked about how what they saw was better than anything they've ever seen. It was also kind of a greatest hits of every, you know, um, VR, AR demo ever done, but it was the best version of all of those things that have ever been done. And somehow the fidelity of it might be enough to get people to actually leave it on their face for longer than, of course, questions about comfort and that kind of stuff. So it's productivity. Um, oof, man, can I imagine the, the care team wearing it? Not really, to be honest, um, in, a, in, in the office setting or something like that. Could it replace some of that administrative time and, and how they do things today? Sure. Is uh, Epic or something like that that's special in, in uh, AR? Probably not. Um, is it possible because now they're still present in the clinic? You know, a nurse comes up really quickly and asks for uh, something or, hey, can you send the script? And they can look down and actually sign something. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it's the first time it's impossible. Will it happen? Don't know. Um, I don't necessarily see the killer app. I'm not that worried about the price point, uh, to be honest, early. Um, I just think it, exactly as Ryan was saying, it just puts it into a certain class of, of user. But I think industrial applications are the ones that could be early. Clinical ones would be interesting, but I don't see the killer app yet in healthcare, to be honest. So when I think of, of um, product categories that have used these sorts of goggles in the past, so one application is as a mental health digital therapeutic for patients. So there's a company Trip out there, uh, and it will sort of guide people through a calming journey. Um, uh, and uh, so uh, that is very immersive, um, and that that could be in an office context uh, or it could be at home, um, and that's already out for the um, you know for the uh, for the Meta Oculus Pro. And then another application is training doctors and surgeons and practitioners. Um, so there's been an incredible investment in training uh, airline pilots with flight simulators and. and People don't know this, but there's a, there's a slightly less investment in training ship pilots with simulators that are not, are not quite as fancy as those airline simulators that actually give you true, you know, movement through space or whatever. Um, uh, and so, but training surgeons, uh, there's, there's been a huge amount of investment in training, training surgeons, other practitioners. And you could imagine um, that this being turned into an app for a $3,000 device, you know, that's, that would be uh, allow uh, you know the greater use of that by medical practitioners who have to get the shape of the 
um, arteries leading to your heart, right, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and then lastly, there's also a sort of an over-the-shoulder medicine. So um, an example of a use case is um, you have someone on site with oil equipment, but someone back at headquarters is a true expert in how to do a repair. And so the, so the, the worker on site has the, has the goggles on and goes to the spot of the trouble. And then, he's, and then he's talking all the time to someone back at headquarters who has the experience and knows exactly how to handle this. And the two of them work together. So you don't have to fly that person at headquarters out to a remote site, for example. Well, likewise, you could have this in medicine as well, where uh, you have uh, interventional cardiologists are doing procedures, but then maybe they're, you know, that for that one particular procedure, they're connected to a cardiothoracic surgeon and there aren't any in Kansas. And so this person, you know, is, is, uh, is operating out of San Francisco who's looking over mm -hmm. the shoulder and who's there to, to give advice or something. Uh, so th those are some of the use cases I'm thinking of. I think like Dave, I don't see a, a killer app here, um, but that's, that's building on some of what we've seen both with uh, meta Oculus and also with Augmetics, which was the Google glass, um, uh, you know, product. Uh, we, we've seen, these are some of the use cases that are being proposed for that. So um, and then, sorry, uh, Ryan, I'd like to actually hear you speak on this if you could, but um, something that I think is interesting that the price point doesn't seem to align, and Steve, you, you began to talk about, which is that RTM, I think, in the 2023 CMS guidance allows for um, remote, uh, no longer does it have to be in-person clinician uses the code, but rather a remote um, uh, observer can do it interesting. This makes this a bit more possible. Um, it is a device that could be used by in the patient, in the patient setting or in the clinical setting where someone is observing or the patient is doing exercise um, in, in the PT scenario for RTM. And there it could be applicable. And then Steve, to riff on your point about um, kind of the, the, the neuro or the cognitive behavioral, um, I believe that cognitive behavioral was added um, as an RTM category, uh, but it's not, it is, it is up for the, um, the, the Medicare administrators to actually determine the reimbursement rate for cognitive behavioral uh, going in 2023 to date. So that, that code is established, but the reimbursement amount is not. But here's this interesting, okay, you see this potential over the next couple of years where this device becomes a RTM and when RTM, RPM are allowed to be coded together, okay, gosh, this, this could be a way to, to make a lot of revenue. The, the one, the one on the provider utilizing this see, tool a, as a way of coding. On an earlier episode of this I just don't know. It'd take a long time to pay back. Some companies price, are using um, the headset. So I don't know DME. if that ever works, but uh, so rather a series of interesting applications. RPM, with RPM, which is the coding, which we're talking about today, but uh, mm -hmm. durable medical equipment, which is kind of, Seems like they should go together because we're talking about them together, but it's a whole different regime. Um, you can do one time. The, the difference being it's more of a capital expenditure, right? So you have to you have to price everything in more or less like one time up front versus getting that recurring cash flow. But the, you could possibly cover it under a DME code. In fact, I'm sure, mm -hmm. I'm sure there are decks, you know, there are decks being written right now around uh, a dual. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, in fact, I may need to drop off, Steve. I just, no, no, no. no, no. And I'm thinking about this. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We need to. Yeah, I need to go. Uh... Yeah, being feverishly <laughs> written to that extent. <laughs> yeah, now that now that it's occurred to him. <laughs> 
Well, Ryan, Ryan, we, Ryan, we can talk about that. We can talk about that. <laughs> but, you know, I, we have, I, I have heard of like locked down versions of the Apple Watch and the iPhone, you know, being, uh, that, that are, you know, being treated as durable medical equipment and getting reimbursed at one, two, three, four thousand dollars. Um, so, uh, now, mm-hmm. Uh, a commenter, I think it's David, I'm not clear, but has made a really interesting comment. Um, if you're interested in medical device surgical training, also VR is probably the most scaled and successful platform. Initial use cases in ortho and cardio. Thank you. That, that, that That's a really great comment. I also love naming digital health companies, giving them call outs um, uh, when they're, you know, when they, when, when, when they are see doing it, the exact thing we're talking about. So, Anyway, why don't we wrap it up on Apple Vision Pro? Uh, any any final thoughts, uh, Dave or Ryan, on Apple Vision Pro? No, uh, just happy to comment. And if yeah, if anyone's interested, poke me. There you go. So then we've got a, we've got a, a comment from uh, Jeff Sal- Salvo. It looks like. Uh, can you guys comment on the decision by Cigna? And only Cigna so far to not yeah, reimburse it, um, that's a, RTM. That's a, I well, wasn't familiar with the Cigna decision specifically, so I don't want to comment too much like on that. But the, the point I wanted to make on this platform other payers, um, is or that quite the opposite makes uh, it reverse. It's you know, it's head in the early stage ventures tend to jump into uh, things. So before I create hype cycle around it, and there's like a, a vortex echo chamber of founders and VC running against ideas. And I think the uh, one of the things it doesn't anticipate is that they're being observed. Like they, like when they do these massive announcements, like, uh, you know, company, company using remote monitoring raises 20 million at an implied valuation of, you know, a hundred million or something. People at CMS can see that people at Novitas can see that. So it's, um, or Cigna or any of the payers can see that. So it's a, it's a functional, it's a, you know, a complex adaptive system. And these codes are very much in the space where we're trying to settle on what is worthwhile. And if your conversation in your press release is, we're going to get SaaS-like reliable revenue with medical margins, you're going to set off flags. And if you're going to use, you know, big media platforms to tell that story, you're going to disproportionately kind of like muddy the water uh, potentially with some of these folks. And it's, they're responsive. These are very, very sharp people. So um, they're not extremely tech forward, but they're very sharp. So um, I'm not surprised to hear that from Cigna. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's, it's not, it's not yet figured out. And I think, um, longitudinal data collaboration with folks, you know, particularly like, uh, the companies in the fraud, waste and abuse monitoring space can offer a lot of value in figuring out what the return on investment looks like on this stuff, both in terms of, you know, specific studies, but ideally we could do it at real time for whole populations while preserving privacy and which is you know, a problem that I focus on a lot. And, um, and you know, start paying for performance in near real time, um, and and less of less of propping up an entire company around you know what might seem like exploiting some of these codes. That's great. Thank you. That, that, that that's a, a, a much more sophisticated analysis uh, than I would than I'd be able to give. Uh, so thank you, Ryan. Um, so uh, now now we're going to move on. We're going to go through conferences real quick and then skip some of our sections because um, to, to, so as to get to uh, 
the, the main topic of the show. But to go through conferences, you know, and if for our audience, feel free to throw up, uh, you know, the name of a conference, and we will give you, uh, you know, a, a, an opinionated reaction to your to the conference you mentioned. As to, and the the theme of this is: Should the digital health CEO go to this conference? Is it worth it? So, the first I'll mention is the Mary Furlong Longevity Venture Summit Conference, June fourteenth to fifteenth, coming right up in Berkeley, California. Uh, so for that conference. That is more on the age tech side of longevity and not the live live forever side of longevity. It's more age tech is more living well while you age normally. Um, and I think this is an outstanding conference if you're in age tech uh, and it also has very good venture representation. And age, this part of age tech overlaps 75% with digital health and then 25% is other stuff like automating wheel writing or whatever, which is not, which is not digital health. Um, uh, and uh, I actually found a discount code on the web for that, uh, FOM20, for a 20% discount code on that. But uh, I, I like the digital, um, I like the, the H-Tech and longevity tech spaces. And this is, as far as I can tell, uh, this, I'm, is I'm in, this is in my backyard. Investor I'm conference. I didn't know about it. Uh, event, it actually uh, sends, uh, representation at the conference for this. The smaller so conferences, like, like the 50 uh, to 300 uh, Ryan, person range are kind of any nice. Thoughts? If you don't, by the way, you don't have to have thoughts idea. on other There are some that have been whatever, but any thoughts on this conference? talking about the same idea for years and years. This seems pretty compelling. H-Tech is, you know, Aging 2.0 was trying to like, promulgate this uh, this concept as a space to innovate in. And it's it's kind of hard to get attention on it because the the voice of the customer is, I think, discounted by tech executives and VCs because they're old. But, um, you know, these, uh, yeah, I think I think it might be a good one. I think it might be a good one. I, I'm considering going. Great. So, uh, so the next one is the Drug Information Association's global annual meeting is June 25th to 29th in Boston, my hometown. Tickets 2400 bucks to go to this conference. Uh, and should the digital health CEO go to this conference? And I actually think this is more for some, if, if you have a clinical team, this is a conference for someone for your, from your clinical team to go to. Uh, but maybe, and, and I, my experience is that you don't get a senior people there as you would at bio, for example. Um, and so, but if you are selling into the pharma clinical budget, like you're a young med, uh, medidata doing clinical trial automation or something like that, th there's a lot to be gained from this. Um, so why would you go? You'd go because there's corporate venture funds there. Well, I think there's less representation of corporate venture funds here than at Bio or, or other similar conferences. You'd go because your buyer, your product buyer is there. Well, I think your product buyer is only going to be there if you're selling into the clinical budget of pharma, not if you're selling into the commercial or the infrastructure budget of pharma or whatever. Um, you'd go there to get partnerships with, with big pharma. Um, I think you you know you might find some clinical decision makers there to talk to. Um, you're going to have fewer, um, you know, sort of, digital innovation pharma execs here, fewer, fewer senior pharma execs here, fewer venture funds here. Um, 
no so that, that's my view. We'll so I, I think this is something you send someone to rather than that you go in to Silicon, yourself. In Silicon, unless San Francisco, you are literally in the sweet spot. There's a neighborhood of, called Haynes Valley that's been you know, rebranded to Cerebral Valley because we're getting generative AI. And so, have you been to DIA? What's your thought? Uh, generative AI for life science applications, particularly drug discovery. So this might be a good one for those folks to go. Um, if you've if you've only ever written Python and now you're in the drug business, this might be a great great place to show up at. Uh, so you can kind of learn learn the tune of uh, of biotech. Um, so that's kind of the just reading the site. It kind of has that feel to me. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, yeah, thank you. So then um, I'm hosting another Digital Health Drinks Night uh, coming up on for for friends who are uh, of the show, who are from out of town, who are coming into Boston during uh, the DIA conference in Boston. I'm hosting a drinks night. It'll be Monday, June 26th. Um, and my friend, Xuan Gui, who is former head of innovation at Novartis, who has founded the Health Disruptors crowd in uh, which is uh, digital disruptors in in biopharma. I'm co-hosting it with him, so we'll be meeting up with we'll be hanging out with the health disruptors uh, that the Monday of DIA, uh, and you can find that that event and register at my Eventbrite page, which is stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Um, so for for brevity's sake, uh, so uh, we'll we'll move on uh, from here, uh, and we'll cover more conferences next week. Um, so then, lastly. Um, uh, I, I think we'll, we'll skip the entry report section as well. So next is moving on to personal notices. So um, I meant, so my next um, drinks night is coming up in Boston on Wednesday, June 14th at 4 p.m. I'm sorry, I'm sorry that, that's my, my next digital, my next uh, show is going to be next week, Wednesday, June 14th at 4 p.m. Guest is Alfred Poor, who is a consumer digital health influencer who's been going to, to, um, uh, the CES show uh, for decades, and we'll be discussing what's working in consumer digital health. And then I have my own drinks night, um, which is uh, uh, on uh, we, longevity tech and age tech in Boston, Thursday, uh, June 15th from 5.30 to 8.30 as well. Ryan, any, any personal notices, any, um, any cities you'll be in or conferences you're attending? Or, here in San Francisco, uh, so if anybody wants to connect and talk about this um, type of nerdy stuff, I am always available. But unfortunately, I'm not traveling anywhere yet. Great, thank you. Um, so now we move on to the future of remote monitoring codes. What are the codes, how to get reimbursed, and what the products and business models are that are working? Um, so Ryan, can we kick off by just, uh, can you tell us some of the history of these codes? What are the codes we're talking about? And now it's no longer just remote monitoring codes, it's also remote therapeutic Yeah, my uh, personal experience with this um, is uh, largely so, an implanted pacemaker, cardiac implanted device that business. So that's the first side is pacemakers and recorders and also pre-sequenization at Medtronic. And, and um, Medtronic, companies like Medtronic are a force for you know, shaping healthcare. 
And coming into the early 2000s, uh, everything had to have, you know, be on the internet. So they developed Carolink, which was an, you know, an internet platform. And they said, hey, like we have all this data, we can probably manage and prevent the bad things from happening with disease if we did it. And then they spent about a decade, you know, trying to tell doctors to do it and doctors didn't want to do it because they didn't get paid for it. And that's where a lot of the need and medical necessity, economic, um, you know, hypotheses came from for getting these codes established. And then over the past decade, they've gotten more formalized. And as we've, uh, digital health has become more of a thing and we can kind of have like, you know, good, good monitoring about, you know, is there fraud and abuse here or is there actual like outcomes, that kind of thing. They've gotten disembodied from those hardcore kind of implantable devices and, you know, they're, they're kind of breaking out. And um, it's a, it's as a, you know, as Jeff highlighted, it's not stable state by any means. Like, I think that's one of the things I was excited to talk about this. Except I, I have a narrow expertise on this, which is getting products to market in the, um, combination of regulatory reimbursement, uh, clinical evidence and distribution, which a lot of people forget about, of how to get a product to market in this. And there's certainly experts uh, more so in the regulatory and the reimbursement and, and all that stuff. Um, so I don't comment on that too much, but as uh, strategists bring these products to market, we have to really think about five to 10 years out because that's, you know, if we release a product today, it's not going to really be understood for another five to 10 years in the marketplace. And decisions like that of Cigna to pull back on reimbursement, I think, are indicative of how these codes are being watched, right? And there's a huge opportunity here because um, this could be the glide path to value-based care, okay? So I think one of the things that's really broken about, you know, what is mostly just a buzzword, I mean, there's a lot of, very valid value-based care organizations out there, but it's not prom, you know, it's not proliferating as the, as the dominant way we get care yet because uh, there's a lot that has to happen in terms of like understanding trust and outcomes and money. You know, it's a lot about money. So um, these these codes provide a narrow window into disease indications, uh, devices, tooling, and analytics needed to uh, do them successfully, and then business models, right, where distribution comes in. So um, uh, we can kind of, I'll pause there, but we can talk about how different types of capital allocators classify different types of operational and care models in relation to these codes. And I have some comments on that. That's great. And for our audience, um, we'd love to have you guys, you know, open this up now for our audience to ask questions uh, of uh, me and, and Ryan. Um, so, um, you know, what what have we seen in terms of uh, companies and products taking advantage yeah, of this? I think, I think the one what are, that what are the indications in general that they're being used the for health crisis and what kind of devices and, and, um, and what kind of measures are, 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 are we seeing? Therapy, um, but most of know, the both, cases you know, most commonly, um, but also data, are there are high potential you know, cardiac, cardiac devices, uh, diabetes monitoring, and MSK. And uh, you know, musculoskeletal. And um, you know, the physical therapists, uh, the average um, margin on you know physical therapy clinic is about four percent, and that's down in recent years. The reimbursement overall is about, is down about six percent in the past three years. Um, and using some of these codes, even if they outsource the monitoring and, and documentation around it, Matt is kind of getting to this this a little bit. Um, they can add uh, 
a revenue stream to their practice that's a 50% margin. So as a proportion of overall revenue, it's maybe it's, I don't know, 10%, but it's 50, you know, it's contributions or profit contributions really, really high. Um, and I think that's positive because we want to, you know, physical therapy is great. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of going a lot of different directions on that. But I think uh, the the overall thing is, I think you have to be mindful about not ex- not exploiting the codes. Like, I think you should be truly looking for uh, an outcome. You should be proactively, you know, if you're, if you're going to build one of these codes, you should also be monitoring. Uh, you should also be building infrastructure or buying infrastructure to monitor the outcomes of those codes. I think those necessarily go one and the same. If you're a venture capitalist investing in one of these businesses, you should look for that in the use of funds. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Who is doing that well for PT? Uh, max revenue. Uh, there's one in my notes I can share. Uh, it's kind of a newer one. Uh, I'll see if I can paste the link in, Matt. But uh, the PT guys, uh, they're a little like um, the chiropractor guys, I think, where they look for these entrepreneurial angles to their businesses quite a bit because they don't fit into the bread and butter disease management things. My personal experience with this is in cardiac devices. Um, a friend and CEO I look up to, uh, Sean Kumar, runs a company called Rhythm Science, and uh, they do this for um, implanted pacemakers and defibrillators. And it's a great sales pitch for a cardiology clinic. If you already have, um, you know, let's say 200 device patients, you can add, you know, 60, 70, $80 a month per patient to manage that remote monitoring and then do it on like a 50, 50 split with rhythm science as a, as a partner in that. And that's um, it's a business that's actually so makes so much sense that capital allocators look at it as a private equity play, almost more so than a VC play, unless there's something in the narrative about, you know, digital therapeutics or software as medical device or AI, blah, 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 that will suggest like an asymmetrical return down the line. So what, what I've been hearing in terms of sort of the, the base case use of, of remote patient monitoring codes is using code 99454, um, which is for, uh, you know, so physicians will send patients um, home with a device. And in the past, physicians would never do this. And the device is usually pre-integrated into their EMR in some way. Uh, and uh, this is for uh, blood glucose level, blood pressure, and cardiorhythm um, measurement. Uh, and so in, with, with, with uh, blood pressure, you have typically a wireless connected uh, cuff uh, uh, for that, and you know, clinical grade. Um, for um, blood glucose level, um, you'd have some device like the, long, like the Lobongo device, which is you know, point in time measure of blood glucose level. Um, uh, also connected for the sake of the convenience of the patient who's self-administering this. 
Um, and lastly, uh, a, a cardiorhythm monitoring device as well, which can be, um, if need be, it can be continuous. So a patient can wear it. Um, perhaps it's watch-based or it could even be sticker over heart-based, uh, for example. Um, and then these are capturing more data than in the past. So in theory, you need one data point per month and then you can charge each month. But, but maybe you might get many data points. So if, if you're wearing a continuous device, you might get the, great, the, be, the most continuous, fullest data ever available for this patient or it just simply wasn't available in the past. Um, but you might also get, get um, several uh, blood glucose levels per month uh, or several blood pressures per month. Um, and so the way that uh, provider businesses are using this is, number one, they get to charge a monthly uh, as long as they have a qualified uh, clinician review the data in the context of the patient's overall care, um, then they can charge a, an, you know, a remote patient monitoring fee for this. And that's why it was brought in because doctors were never paid for this. It happened at the patient's home. Doctors in the past wanted the patient to come in and see them and then do have a clinician do the measurement in the office with their equipment. Now they can finally have the patient do this at home. Um, uh, and uh, so part one is they get paid the remote patient monitoring code. But part two, which is intriguing, and, I, and I, I hope this is going in a good direction, but you also will now catch severe episodes that you wouldn't have caught before. You might catch a very high, a severe elevated blood pressure. You might catch, you know, a, uh, uh, a heart uh, uh, rhythm irregularity. Um, and so now they, the, the doctor can uh, realize that they have a sicker patient than they thought they had. And then they can adjust the risk coding for the patient and be paid more for the patient over time. Um, so in the past, doctors, they didn't want you to take your own measurements. They didn't want you to take measurements at home. They wouldn't give you a device. They didn't want you to show up in their office with your own measurements. <laughs> uh, and the, the RPM code has flipped this around where now the doctor wants that data. There's liability issues, but, but they're being paid now for it. So now they're getting that data. They need someone who's responsible and trained to look at that data. They can put that in the overall context. Of yeah, care. thanks for providing that a uh, problem uh, more fundamental with you uh, as you groundwork data from the topic. But yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that, um, those are, so that those are um, the areas Dave that asked about, like, what is the revenue uh, ROI for these providers? Play, play what out. I'm hearing is um, about 50-50. Uh, are you seeing some more things, Ryan? I'm most familiar with it for cardiology. Is probably like ten or twenty percent uh, of, of practices are using it. Um, it's not a huge amount of revenue. I think is is the thing that's relevant. So it's kind of like uh, tacking on. It's a nice to have. It's a it's a model they're familiar with um, from single lead ECG remote monitoring. Um, so uh, yeah, so it's 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 still kind of coming coming together a little bit because the alternative is you as a practice have to set up a mobile cardiac. Uh, telemetry operations. You need to have like nurses doing this stuff. Um, when I was in sales at Medtronic uh, in Boston Academic Centers, Harvard, Tufts, and that kind of thing, uh, the, you know, Mass General they would they were kind of mounting up um, these you know telehealth clinics and you know trying to get their day nurses to do it, and it's it's a struggle. So it's it's kind of pushed. Um, the operations out to you know business associate. Uh, some of them are startups. Some of them are just LLCs. Uh, to take off that operational burden, the reports go back to the prescribing physician, and then there's some revenue split, which is often 50-50.
do they do they know if we can charge two x so they get no because the the reimbursement rates are set by uh um cms and they're not super high like it's like 80 bucks so i think if you're like if you're looking at it from consumer software you're like wow i can get a guaranteed 80 dollars per user per month like i can make a lot of money that way but if you're looking at it from cardiology 80 dollars per you know per patient per month sounds like the cost of paper clips. So you're like, what, why would I do this? So it, it kind of doesn't happen for a lot of uh, clinics until a sales rep from one of these companies comes in and, and offers, offers a turnkey solution. So Ryan, that that's really interesting because you're you've opened up some angles of this that I, I hadn't yeah. thought of, which is, uh, you know, uh, one way of one simplistic way of looking at this is that you simply have more data points, um, and then the physician and they're being captured at home, and the physician has to rely on that they're accurate, for example, um, and but now the physician's getting the the data and is getting paid for it. Now they're liable to a certain extent, and so what if the patient reports data at seven o'clock at night. That's very, very serious. Um, uh, and I, I actually, this is a, this is, I hadn't considered this. And I don't know what, what this means. Now that physician said, I agree to do this remote patient monitoring. I'm doing it. And now a patient's just reported at 7 PM and I'm at home with, with my family and my, my staff is, you know, is gone. Uh, and so, uh, and so, you know, it, do I need to tell this patient to go to the hospital emergency room? Am I liable in some way? Right. Is that gap from 7 p.m. until, you know, am I on the hook for um, learning about this tonight? Am I on the hook for learning about this by 9 a.m. tomorrow morning? Uh, you know, uh, I, I, maybe I thought when I went into this, I was, I was going to look at them all at once, once a month, uh, but meaning that 15 days are going to go by before I see this data point or something. Uh, what if I, there's auto alerts, which are good, but the auto alerts trigger me at midnight? Um, you know, do I, do, do I want that in my, in my medical practice? Um, uh, and so uh, that I, I hadn't, I, I, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but of course you're dealing with sick people for whom a, a data point might be very serious. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and of course we, we want there to be a reaction. So someone who let's just say has incredibly high blood pressure, that's dangerous at 10 o'clock at night in the past, they would have just gone to bed. Um, and maybe something, maybe there would have been a problem, maybe not. Uh, but now, um, they're, they're being cared for in a way where this could be noticed and, and, but then is it going to get the reaction it needs? That, that's actually a really interesting. It's a reason why if a cardiologist thinks that $80 per patient per month is low, it's a reason why they might never agree to see patients using this arrangement um, because it, it might put place undue burdens. Yeah, I would uh, say the, I would say the I, I don't know adoption how this is working out. The clinical the communities of and also, uh, lobbying the of CMS to get this uh, stuff reversed is how, how this is playing out. Uh, limited. So um, not by awareness. Anyway, but do, by do you have any, any thoughts on that? Right. So we, we heard this a lot from doctors, even going back to uh, I entered the field in 2006. Uh, it was very it was a very clear feedback like uh dude i'm not gonna i'm not gonna respond to this at 3 a.m you know what i mean like i don't i don't want mrs jones to have the expectation that if mr jones has a heart attack in the middle of the night i immediately call i'm on my way over i'm batman clinical batman i'm on my way over with the you know 
with the, the ambulance to save Mr. Jones. I don't want that. That's very, very clear. So um, you, you have to put uh, licensed clinicians uh, in kind of like a, an operations center to handle that capacity, you know, with whatever the ut- utility cycle is on a rolling clock, whatever it is. And the companies that do this best, like uh, you, uh, you mentioned cardiac, like iRhythm was kind of the early ones, like iRhythm. Essentially, you can tell when iRhythm started because it's got the i in front of it. So they stole the i from you know the iPhone, and um, that was about the time this conversation was getting hot. And uh, uh, Uday, the you know very very talented medical device entrepreneur behind iRhythm, you know set this up. But they are struggling even having fully operationalized these mobile you know telemetry centers to maintain margin in some some respects. So iRhythm got hit by Novitas, uh, which is the large CMS. Um, uh, large CMS uh, contractor that kind of sets these rates on this stuff. They got hit a couple years ago and it, it triggered a corporate restructuring. It was almost, you know, felt kind of, ex- it was very scary, almost felt existential. And um, now uh, they're in a position where they're, they're, they're trying to move their operations offshore. Right. So it's like, it's, it's not just too, uh, too low a margin for a cardiologist in a given practice to care. Even when you get economies of scale by putting in an operations center, the licensure is like dropping, you know, from nurse practitioner to maybe IBHRE, which is a specific certification for devices, certified person. And now it's going offshore. And like they're talking, you know, companies are talking about putting these operation centers in the Philippines, which is a common um, response for like virtual assistance uh, uh, in a lot of businesses. And I think that's one of the things that when I, when I hear startups and VCs talk about the upside of the stuff, I'm like, this stuff is quite expensive to operate, you know, and we're, we're the things that are the machinery of that's happening in the middle there that's driving that expense is not being addressed a lot of the times. So I think there was a vision when these codes came out. So by the way, I think, you know, the, the, I think CMS and the FDA have actually been pretty generous and progressive about digital health. So there was a, there was a concern if you cycle back 10, 15 years ago that, you know, legendarily, I think the FDA had a senior bureaucrat once who never approved a drug in his life. Um, I, I, and we, we should find the, the name of that person, but he is celebrated as an anti-hero. And, we, and there was a concern that the FDA and CMS would be overly conservative with regards to digital health, therefore stymieing growth. We haven't seen that, though. In fact, during the Obama and Trump presidencies, and perhaps also during the Biden presidency, we saw sort of young progressive figures well-known in digital health who got senior roles at, at uh, you know, uh, at, at different parts of FDA, um, at different parts of CMS, pushing things like remote patient monitoring codes um, to get uh, you know, the tech reimbursed somehow, to create a business model that would reimburse tech, that would move the practice of medicine forward. Um, so the FDA and CMS have been pretty good. Um, and I think there was a vision at the time, if you cycle back five, 10 years ago about these codes, the vision was that you'd have a little medical practice. Um, now, by the way, if, if you think of one medical, what are the annual dues for one medical? It's about $200 uh, to join one medical, be a member of it. And this allows better care because the medical practice can count on every patient baseline, even if they make little use of, of, of medicine that year, 
paying $200. And therefore, one medical can reduce the total number of patients it sees, increase the time per patient, be unrushed, um, and have this baseline payment so that they're not, you know, as, but as they can offer a little bit of an extra nearly concierge level of service um, uh, for, and, and see patients longer. That's the theory behind the 200 bucks. So now you take the remote patient monitoring codes. I think, I think there was a vision that you'd have small medical practices, a two doc practice in a suburb of, of St. Louis or something. Um, and they would have patients who have diabetes, who are, have high blood pressure, et cetera. Uh, and that for them, this ability to charge 50 bucks or 80 bucks per patient per month for those patients, um, that the, the little doc would take care of the solution engineering. They would go and get a, uh, a, a blood glucose monitor like the Livongo one, and they would integrate it with their, with their EMR, with their, you know, their Allscripts EMR, let's say. Uh, and, uh, and then they would give these to patients and have the patients take them home with them or whatever. And then they would have a low-level clinician who's nevertheless well-trained uh, would review the data. Um, and then they would get this uh, 80 bucks a month uh, inbound, and that would make a big difference to them uh, in that context. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'd be curious how this is evolving, because what if the liability issues drive the fact that, that uh, medical practices don't want to do it this way, but instead they want to subscribe to services, which in turn will take a cut. They'll take 50% or whatever, um, and then they'll have you know, 24 seven centers monitoring this. Uh, and then they'll, uh, you know, because you got sick patients reporting results that could be, you know, uh, could indicate a problem uh, and then triggering action or at, at 3 a.m. or whatever. So I, I you know, I, I don't think that was necessarily the, the way that it was thought this would play out when digital health advocates inside of FDA and CMS pushed for changes like this over the past, you know, 10 plus years. Um, but I wonder if it's headed that way. Uh, um, do, do you have any thoughts as to whether we're going to see mom and pop uh, little docs doing this all themselves and collecting the revenue yeah, themselves, or whether it's the, all going to be hidden, moved the to hidden element? Um, there's you know, four, there's four of, pillars uh, driving any uh, centers that, that look like life science business. Call and there's like the one we think it's about is like the clinical impact in, in, on the product. Really, case, that's the obvious big, big one. Big vendors are going to take like over. The thing that's not. Uh, less obvious is like uh, you know, the clinical evidence story, the reimbursement story, um, the regulatory strategy, like what are the on-label claims? How exactly can it be positioned? And then distribution. And distribution um, is governing all of this a lot more than we can summarize, I think, in here because it's hard to, it's hard to grasp. It has like a physical, a vast physical presence. Um, so a lot of these solutions will depend on the most, the, the founders I admire most in the space actually come from traditional medical device sales backgrounds because they're not trying to do run Facebook ads to get these deals that they, they, they wouldn't even know how to run a Facebook ad. They are just, you know, calling people they work with in Texas or Florida or Arizona to get a conversation going with a group practice there. And I think that's, um, that's one of the things that's really missing from the most optimistic uh, narratives on the startup side of things that um, the incumbents will absolutely dominate if there's not, you know, like an opposing force that's mounted. And I don't, I don't really know how that happens. So we're contemplating that in our roadmap quite a bit. Um, and there's a lot of infrastructure questions as well, like EMRs are uh, really just, you know, there's a lot of pain and agony associated with EMRs. So the idea of like 
oh, like I'm going to have Epic, you know, do this deep integration. It's going to be intuitive and not make me hate my life sounds off like baby, maybe, you know, but uh, Carbon or somebody, you know, it's probably going to be vertically integrated. So like Carbon, Carbon is probably the one. I think Forward, if they had a more um, affirmative and confident regulatory posture could do it, but they, they, try and, they tend to shy away from the FDA. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's my thought. So another call to our audience uh, for yeah, I uh, think, to throw um, any questions you have in, in the room chat. Um, and uh, so, Ryan, any, any more thoughts on business models that work with remote patient monitoring codes or remote therapeutic monitoring codes? Yeah, I think, um, I think cardiac works. Going. I think if you're going to enter, you need to I, have I, I've, uh, material story. You might see of, you know, cuts um, in the size of the code if add, there's overuse you know, AI, of the code. Specifically software is medical. It has to be on the AI. What's working and where's Do AI without making it regulated and... As somebody who's spent 10 years trying to avoid regulation and the past 10 years trying to accept and automate regulation, I think you're going to need to automate the regulation or like do something with the regulation. You're going to have to be regulated. Um, so I think the business model is shifting around. I think the other thing is as you try and like connect the dots and craft these into digital therapeutics, which is kind of another like hot topic, the third leg of this that nobody talks about yet is remote programming. So digital therapeutics have failed, and that's probably the, the biggest like uh, idea that I have on this talk, is uh, remote programming is not a conversation that happens outside of implanted devices yet today, but it represents um, a huge, like a magnitude increase in the, the efficacy or you know, the mechanisms of actions we can think about um, for digital therapeutics. And I think that's ultimately where all this is going. It's gonna take a long time, and I urge kind of competency, not caution, but competency, around safety and efficacy so that we can get there faster because there is an imperative both in terms of healthcare access, human suffering, and, you know, the cost to American society at, at this time. Yeah, uh, just real quick, remote... Remote programming is not, That's yet, great. not yet talked about. But the well, good. Well, so is, for audience, um, any final questions? Uh, digital therapeutics. And, uh, Ryan, any final uh, kind of remarks on uh, oh, right. and then we the have mechanism here. of action um, there is cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectic behavioral therapy, things that have like these low risk the, uh, profiles and can be delivered through content in usually a mobile app. Okay. That's kind of whatever. It's the efficacy that, you know, the, it's, it's, a, it's a muddy story right now. It's not very obvious. Moving forward, however, though, um, we'll be wearing devices that administer therapy to us. And today, most con the most consumer relevant case would be glucose monitors. So remote programming would be, I have uh, remote patient monitoring to monitor the device. I have remote therapeutic monitoring to watch the administration of glucose. And then I have remote programming as the physician to remotely change settings in the device without the patient coming in and doing it under um, yeah, observation. Uh, and that's kind of, that's, that's where a lot of this is going. So the, the implanted device, you know, folks are way ahead of this, obviously, like by 20 years, they've been contemplating this It's in many of the architecture of their products, but it's going to, 
as the hospital at home uh, narrative comes to scale and we kind of blow up these things and you know, the, the products that do this now are very verticalized and they need to become these like more layered and kind of numerous platforms. Um, and as that kind of blows up and creates this you know, diaspora of products, I think we'll see remote programming uh, for driving better outcomes you know, become a, a thing that we talk about more in like five to 10 years. That's great. And we have a we have a audience member, Stephen Keeler, saying uh, we are a turnkey, no risk, no cost RPM service and guarantee 30 percent of revenues generated in any given month. It works. That's great. That's great to hear from someone in, in the industry uh, who is, um, uh, you know, who's built a company around around the codes um, and, and what they're experiencing. So that's Thank great. Um, so. That, that's great. Well, with that, um, we'll wind down. Uh, so uh, you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk. Um, I'm your host, Steve Wardell. Many thanks to our guest, Ryan Steller. Thanks so much, Ryan. Um, you'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, where, where my handle is Stephen Wardell. Um, and you can sign up uh, for... Um, you can follow the Eventbrite list as well to get notices from Eventbrite of upcoming shows. See you next time on Wednesday, June 14th at 4 p.m. for our show, What's Working in Consumer Digital Health with Alfred Poor. Alfred is a health tech futurist and the former editor of Health Tech Insider. Um, and you can follow him at twitter.com slash Alfred Poor. And our next uh, Boston Drinks Night is on age tech and longevity tech on Thursday, June 15th at the Liberty Bar and Hotel. Um, thanks very much, and I'm signing off. Bye-bye. Uh, bye, Ryan.